Welcome. Today we're joined with Giovanni, co-founder of Lifeblood Capital. Giovanni is a true visionary in the field of finance and startup development with a wealth of knowledge and experience under his belt. Not only is Giovanni academically accomplished, but he also has a wealth of practical experience, having traveled to 40 plus countries, assisting 500 startups with team building and fundraising strategies, leading to $3 billion in acquisitions. We have a lot that we get into in this episode. We talk about the looming recession, recruiting, hiring, and a variety of different topics. Check the chapters below and the timestamps if you want to get a sense of what's going to be happening. If you like this content, please like and subscribe. We're working to put out two to three new episodes a week and every bit helps. Let's stay curious and learn about Giovanni, his work at Lifeblood Capital and more in this episode of the Learn Lowell Show. All right, so there's been uh, all these mass layoffs. I think uh, 10,000 from Amazon, 4,000 from Twitter, like a lot of stuff in the tech sector. How is this, uh, is similar shakeups happening as people are concerned about recessions or whatever uh, in the med tech space? Have you seen anything like that happening? So I always have to bifurcate it out the worlds that I play in when I look at med tech. So you, you still have the corporate world, right? You have the Medtronics, the Boston Scientifics, the Johnson and Johnsons of the world. And then you have the startup cultures and the and the five person companies, the 15 person companies, the going upwards of 50 to 100 person companies. Uh, there has been some layoffs that we've heard of on the corporate side. But overall, I think there's been more of a steady hold on the startup side. And it's either a steady hold or a fairly healthy growth effort. There hasn't been a bunch of startups that have consistently laid off. I mean, when we heard back in March of 2020 through June of 2020, where it didn't matter if you were small, medium or large, um, people were just getting cut left and right. That's not what's happening now, especially, and, and I can only speak to MedTech, um, there have been layoffs going on in the corporate world, but my world in terms of major activity day in, day out is in the small to medium-sized company world. And that has been at either a cool holding standpoint or it has been moderate growth. I, I think the days of back half of 2020 and for the most part all of 2021 this white noise fire of growth um, and it's fairly reflective of how we saw the stock market grow slash pullback um there's a somewhat emulation of that going on but i think overall med tech hasn't been too bad okay is it is do you think a part of it is like they tend to i imagine a lot of people just did a lot of raises so maybe it's the fact that they have like 18 month runways because I think like way Combinator, for instance, is saying like most people should try and get things set, situated so that they're revenue positive sooner. But MedTech is usually a longer term play inevitably. So they one, they already have money for a longer period of time than um, I think the average recession is about 18 months to 22 months or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. So they already potentially have. I'm just curious, like what, are, what do you think are the factors that are coming in to allow MedTech to be a little bit more insulated and can keep pushing forward to develop the things they want to be developing? Once again, sticking on the small to medium-sized companies, I mean, there are companies right now who are struggling if they need cash. Well, I've, I've heard of startups have to close their doors if they needed cash to raise and, and the raising period of time was a little bit more challenging. So that is something that we have to be aware of. However, medical device investors, as well as medical device startups themselves, I mean, when I say medical device and let's just use med tech, you know, it, it means regulated 
hardware and or software technologies. So let's just stay in that regulated for, field for a moment. Um, nothing direct to consumer or anything like that. So if we're in a regulated industry, you're talking about time to get either FDA clearance or approval on the class three devices, which you know can take upwards of five to 10 years. I mean, there's plenty of companies that I know that still don't have regulatory approval um, and they're seven years old or coming up on 10 years old. And there's obviously reasons for that. I'm sure that they could share with you, but you know, when you go into a fairly healthy startup company in med tech, you're talking about a minimum of three years to revenue generation. And if that's a, a 510k, right? And if they can get it that done quickly. And I've heard some amazing stories of, of, of people being able to move swiftly. Typically speaking, you're talking about a four to seven year ride. Uh, and I'm overly generalizing amongst med tech. So when you're talking about those kind of development periods until commercialization or regulatory approval or clearance, you're talking about, and once again, assumptively that these companies are being financed by venture capital firms. The venture capital firms have limited partners and more often than not, these are 10 year horizon firms, right? So they, they, they raise a fund, they have to deploy the capital usually within the first three to four years, and then they're supposed to be able to return that fund within 10 years to their LPs. There's always circumstances that can change what I just said on a minimal basis, but that's in essence what we're talking about. So if that's the case, and you mentioned 18 months to 24 months as the typical recession, how many recessions can we get through in a 10-year fund, right? So once the fund closes, there's a fiduciary responsibility to deploy that capital by the venture capitalists from the LPs, um, or for the LPs, rather, I should say, limited partners. So once the fund exists, they have to deploy the capital, independent of whether we're in the height of a recession or not in the greatest of times and not a recession. So when the money is available, I mean, we, we're hearing that a lot right now. When you're we're in a depression, we're in a recession, whatever it may be, money is available. Let's just get that super clear. Money's being deployed. One of a very good friend of mine who's a venture capitalist said it very well, who gave me some great insight. There's a lot of internal rounds going on right now that will never make it to the press. So in 2020 and 2021, when you heard all these press releases about this company raised money, that company raised money, this company raised, and that has quieted down a bit. It's because there's a lot of internal rounds going on in this uncertain period that the venture capitalists are assessing. Do I put more money into the companies that I'm already investing in? Um, do I hold off for six months and wait to have this cool down a bit and then make more investments once things get better? You know, those two strategies, let's talk about that real quick. Um, you won't hear about the money that's being deployed right now, typically speaking, if it's not new money, if it's internal round money. So that's one thing and money is moving. The other thing is if there's a fiduciary responsibility by the venture capitalist to return the capital to an, a limited partner or multiple limited partners over a 10 year horizon um, and they hold off six months because it's a cool off period and they wanna assess what's going on. That's six months that they're losing that they don't, that they aren't deploying capital, which then squeezes their timeline of the time that they actually do have to deploy capital. So if they're waiting for the, if we haven't seen a lot of investments being made in the past six months, 
Well, all that that's doing is taking that three to four years and shrinking it by an extra six months of them having to deploy that capital. So maybe they have to make two investments or three investments in six months moving forward, which is somewhat of the speculation as to why things might seem a little brighter or look a little better in 2023 when there might be more money activity, more press releases, more new investments being made. So I'm trying to get to your answer and, and, and come to a clear conclusion where medtech is not as susceptible to knee-jerk reactions on what happens on the front of New York Times when we're in a recession or a depression because the development life cycles outlast your 24-month average or 18-month average of a recession. They're longer than that. So they might have to endure one, two, maybe even three depressions, pullbacks, or recessions in the life cycle of a medical device, hmm. number one, coupled with the fact that realistically the recessions are independent of the venture capital funds themselves because they usually run on 10-year horizons. Once again, how many recessions, depressions, or pullbacks can exist in 10 years? So I don't want to say that's what makes medtech resistant. It just makes it less susceptible to knee-jerk reactions based on economics. That makes a lot of sense. It's it's especially with those horizons in mind. I think uh, anyone listening would would understand that a little bit more. Um, so a big component outside of helping people raise money is that you do recruiting and hiring and helping people understand that piece of it. Um, a lot of people read or hear that they should be moving through jobs over the course of like a couple of years, like every two years. If you're like a job person versus like a founder person. Um, how does that work in, in, in your field? Is it, do you see people going the whole gamut from like day one? I and mean, this is like, we're talking like averages. I'm sure there's some people that will, some people that won't. But uh, traditionally, when you find someone a place to work at that matches what they want to be working at, how long do they stay there? How long do they stay there versus how long should they stay there? Are two different questions, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> two years. You have to ask the question of, what did you or what could you accomplish in two years within a medical device company? When everyone gets onboarded, right? I mean, for the first three months, let's call that a wash, right? Everyone's learning each other's names. You're learning where the bathrooms are, all that kind of good stuff. Three months is just kind of getting up and running type stuff. Six months, you know, you're getting a little bit warm. You're doing some stuff. You're you're falling into a groove. After the first year, you know, you feel like you've been at the company. Um, you know everyone's name. You're so, you're slowly starting to build relationships with your peers, etc. But a year goes by pretty quickly. Then you have one more year to make two. When you're talking about designing, scaling, or commercializing medical devices, and we talked about those timelines of development. Let's just say you're an engineer. Well, if you're at a company for two years and you have another how many years before it gets cleared or approved to even see if it gets that far, well, you you haven't even stuck around for most of the story. I don't have to say that everyone should stick around for the full life cycle. I mean, most oftentimes it's, it's not even possible for a lot of the crazy reasons that we can think of, right? where there's layoffs or there's changes or whatever it may be. However, jumping every two years, you have to ask yourself the question, what could you truthfully accomplish or impact into a company in two years? 
I have seen people be hired at the right time for very acute, identifiable projects that are high value for the life of a company that may only take 18 months or a year or two years. And they are such an execution artist that they were at the right place at the right time and they were the right profile, having the right skill sets to come in and execute what they're supposed to be doing. And then they made this massive impact to the company, which literally brought it to the next milestone or level of which it needs to grow or even got approved or commercialized or, or even an acquisition, whatever it may be. Um, but for the most part, when you're talking about career development, if me as a recruiter or me as a potential employer, if I looked at somebody who has 10 years of employment and they've had five jobs and they literally move every two years and I'm have a position on my team that is not an acute project that they're going to come in, make a huge dent, and then I don't care if they're here after two years or not anymore, but I really do need them to build themselves into the fabric of the culture, um, help lead a team, whatever it may be. Do I want somebody who I have a high likelihood based on the statistical history uh, of them moving every two years, joining my team when I would love them to stay for five years or more? No. So it, it's it's circumstantial, obviously, um, in terms of really what the need is of the company and the project, et cetera. However, if you're talking about in a objective vacuum, building your career, um, you shouldn't be looking every two years to make a move. I would say maybe you know three to four is certainly healthy. Um, five is excellent. And then you start getting into stereotypes where and even recruiter stereotypes when i see someone who's been at a company for 10 years and they send me their resume the likelihood of me being able to pull them out of that i mean there's once again there's always different circumstances but when someone's been in a fabric of a company culture of a company for 10 years usually they're going to make the and, and there's no reason for them to move like they're organically looking outside they're not under pressure because the company's folding or whatever have you the reason for them to leave all the relationships and the human connections that they've made and the peers that they've worked alongside with for a decade, it has to be almost the perfect opportunity for them to leave that. So there becomes this tipping point where if you're going to put a gun to my head and say, what are really the, the window of time that you should be staying at a company to stay healthy, meaning for your career growth, but also what you can actually see through in terms of life, life cycles of skill sets that you're learning and being able to tell a story of what you can impact a company with, it's between four and seven years. Anything under four years, you always have to understand why. There's usually circumstances. Um, and anything over seven years, you really have to prod and test if they're really willing to make a move. Makes sense. The um, So I have a, I know a number of people in biotech, medtech, and uh, I always hear this 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 uh, comment that like three months is just like you know getting your feet wet. Um, but at the same time, I've seen people who can change that to get people working much faster. Are there uh, in your in your experience is there are there structural or like why why would it take like three months just for people to get like this is something that like everyone's heard like for the first three months you're just getting to know people you know maybe even longer than that just to get your your feet where it needs to be. But with the right support from like the the team onboarding and all these other things uh like most most places that 
uh, I've given these suggestions to you. They usually can get people working much, much, much faster than that. So I'm curious, like what, just like following with that, that rhythm keeps people from, if you're like, if you're advising and working for an entrepreneur or the, the C-suite people who are trying to, you know, build out their team. Like I imagine they don't want three months. They would rather, you know, people working as, <laughs> as best as they can, as soon as possible. Uh, how do you get them as soon as possible then? Or do you just let them know like through, I mean, these are like rough rules. Okay. I'm not, I'm not thinking that, you know, it's like, all right, at three months, then you can start expecting, you know, production or something. But I do hear that a lot. And uh, I, I was just, as someone who literally spends their lives, you know, finding people, finding them a home and knowing if you did a good job, you know, three, six months to know if you did a right fit, is it probably like kind of like frustrating for you or the applicant as well? It's not necessarily dependent on the individual being able to work or not. If you're hiring a professional, especially an experienced professional, it's not that they can't immediately make an impact or difference and have that transferable skill set be put to work even day one. What I really mean by that three-month period of warming up, it's everything external of the individual. If there's peers in the team, how quickly can you trust those people? Do you know what they're uh -huh. capable of? How do you overlap your skill sets with their skill sets and tackle problems together? Uh, building those relationships so that you can do things as a union with people who you just joined the team with, who you didn't know prior to this company. And then understanding the technology itself. I mean, even if it's a, you know, I, I love heart valves, transcatheter heart valves is, is my thing uh, alongside neuromodulation, surgical robotics. I mean, I love med tech overall, but you know, I, I strongly built my career on the startups that came up with the transcatheter heart, heart, heart valves. And so, even amongst them, when you're going from a transcatheter mitral valve repair system to a transcatheter mitral valve replacement system, the anatomy of what you're looking at is the same anatomy, but the technology is different. The story is different that you're telling the physicians. The story may be different that you have to write on all the documentation that you're going to submit to the FDA. Uh, the information that you have to share with the the, the potential patients that you're recruiting for a clinical trial. So it's to answer your question, the three months comes in from not necessarily the individual being held back on their ability to make an impact day one. It's their ability to move as a union with the team that's already in place that they're joining so that they could build those human relationships and also simultaneously feel comfortable telling the story of the technology that they're working on. Hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah learning learning the nuances of the industry that they're partaking in you know if there's if there's 17 mitral valve replacement companies well what are the other ones doing why is our company the best what are we doing differently that the other ones aren't how am i relaying that story to the outside world when i have to interact with them it's right so it's storytelling based on the actual technology that you have to absorb and, and understand how to make an impact on and everything that you have to learn in order to do so and then it's obviously the human relationships that you're developing on the team that was already there before you got there. That's really where that first three months of trying to shake off the dust comes in. Not necessarily someone just sitting off in the corner waiting for someone to tell them to do something. Yeah, that makes sense. The, uh, when it comes to the recruiting process, where do you come in? Do you, do you do like A to Z or does the company do like, you know, the first phase of hiring and then you come in in the last couple, like how do you fit into the hiring process? Do you take care of the... Like if I'm if I'm hiring and I'm looking for you know a uh, director of X, 
uh, do you come in and do the whole thing? I mean, do you selectively do a component of the technical hiring? Um, like, how do you fit into it, into the ecosystem of just hiring people? We do the whole thing to make it a super simple answer. Hmm. We work only with med tech startups. Once again, med tech being regulated hardware and or software startups, anything from a technology turning into a company spinning out of an incubator all the way through multinational commercialization, especially, well, certainly they're privately held if they haven't gone public or got acquired yet. And they're doing an initial commercial test, if you will. Um, that's later stage for us because they're already in commercial stages for sure. But we put together numerous marketing teams, commercial teams, et cetera, for privately held companies. However, there's more startup companies that are in that R&D early stage clinical quality regulatory phase um, than there are commercial because there's a lot of startups who ultimately fail that don't even get FDA clearance or approval to go commercialize. So, you know, there's this funnel that goes upward, right? So there's a lot more startups. I should, that there's a lot more startups on the, on the bottom that are building themselves. And as you go up to this cone shape, um, there's less and less and less because of the failures that exist for a multitude of reasons, but there's fewer that are approved and commercialized versus the plethora of innovation that's being developed. So we work in only med tech startups. What our job is on a much more consultative basis is to be basically the best friend of the executive team or even singularly the CEO on helping them not only simply recruit but design their team. Oftentimes startups come to us and they don't come to us with a position description. They don't come to us and say, this is the title that we need. And this is the profile that we know that we need. Go out and get us candidates for that. Does that happen? Sure. Yeah. That's you know more transactional, cut and dry, just go off and do it. A lot of times we work with startups and saying, okay, what is going on in your company right now? Where are the major gaps? What is what are the the four or five of you in the company or the 10 of you doing right now that if you hired the 11th or the sixth person to be dedicated to that, it frees up a bunch more time and space for everyone to do their retrospective or their, their, their focused specialties, right? So like, what is the gap analysis that's going on in the team right now that you should be hiring? Is it putting in a quality system and then finally hiring a quality manager because you don't have some someone right now and the R&D team's kind of taking that over with the head of ops. I don't know, I'm making it up. But mm -hmm. what we do is we go through that whole consultative process, identify and talk about market landscape and what candidates are doing in certain styles of profiles that could fit that. And then we work directly with the startups on creating that position description. And then once we're all good to go, that's on us to go out and recruit that through a very transparent storytelling process, very media rich process. You know, the one thing that I think is changing drastically, and if it hasn't fully changed, which I know it hasn't fully changed, but definitely should, is the days, the old days of recruiting that were so obtuse and not transparent, where it's a recruiter calling somebody out of the blue and saying, I have a great position that I think you'll be highly interested in. And it's right down the street from you. And I would love to share more information with you. Do you have 30 seconds? And the answer today in 2022 is hell no, I don't have 30 seconds for that because life is busy. I have an iPhone in my hand. I have the world at my fingertips of information. Um, 
and I have a lot going on in my life right now. And the fact is that I, you said so much without saying anything at all. I don't have time for you. So we are very fragmented in our time these days. When you go out and you storytell in a position, the more that you can give transparently and yeah. drop something in somebody's lap that they can choose to read on their iPhone while they're in the bathroom or when they put their kids to sleep and they finally have 15 minutes to look through an email or read an article or watch a technology video clip um, or you know, on their way to work when they're at the red light and they can quickly read the, the title of the email that you just sent them that actually tells the name of the company and what the position title is. That's today and that's how we work. And we work very, very transparently, which is why we have fairly strict our agreements with our clients and we are an exclusive recruitment firm. So once we do take on a position with our clients, we are exclusive and we are full-blown partners with them. We are an extension of that med tech startup in the field where we are, it's our responsibility to go out and aggregate obviously appropriate profiles and candidates and only present those to our clients. But it's a lot of very transparent storytelling and good storytelling to engage currently employed, likely more often than not, candidates to pick their head up when they don't have to and say, wow, that's interesting. I'd like to learn more based on all the information that you share with me. That's what we do. And that's what we do for startups. And, and if you visit our website, lifebloodcapital.com, we even have a link that is called philosophy. And our, mm -hmm. our philosophy is literally, we are hired as a protection of a brand, when we are in as an extension of a med tech startup out in the field and we are use, utilizing your name and we are utilizing the ability to tell your story that you have created over a multitude of years to be able to go out and attract strangers and engage them in your story, that is a huge responsibility because if you're not a good storyteller, if you're not a good recruiter, if you're not capable of gaining attention by the necessary people, all that you're doing is bruising the brand of the startup company that's entrusted in you to go out into the field. And that's a huge responsibility that we take seriously. So um, just to be super clear on that, why we take on this responsibility and how and where we come into the process is the reason why we take on the full process and we, and, and we offer white glove service to our startup companies is because it's a responsibility. We don't just come in and just only do part of it and just toss it over to the side and say, hey, pay our fee, but the rest is on you. Um, it's, a, it's a responsibility and, and hiring people is a burden until it becomes such a burden that it chokes out a startup and actually hurts the operational functionality, typically speaking. More often than not, companies are not proactive in their hiring practices. Um, it's unfortunate, but the ones that are proactive usually end up getting the best talent. Yeah. And uh, so I, I, I agree with everything you said there. The I, I was once on a hiring team and uh, the person was in the last interview. There was like four or five rounds and uh, they they were like, uh, so were like at, it was with me, the last one. And um, there were, I was like, so what questions do you have? Because I always like to ask questions to people. I don't like it when people just sit there and be bombarded of me. And uh, they're like, so what is this company about? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and I was like, you know what? And I like pull up all the information that they had on at the time online. It's like, there's no way you could have known this. <laughs> thank 100%. you for asking. Yeah, it's 100%. like, thank you for asking. Like, what, 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 you know, here's the answer. What kept you like staying around for so long? <laughs> like, you're such a nice friend, you know? And that was an interesting thing to, uh, to correct because 
Yeah, I think sometimes a lot of startup founders, either especially the technical ones, they don't understand like if you just have like the build it and they will come mentality, no one's going to come. Or the people who are, who are going to come, it's like, why would they pick you if they don't understand what you're about? Like you want people to really know what you're about. Um, at the same time, I'm curious. Uh, so since you're doing the whole thing, the I've had people who I've, I've been interviewing where they had like a earphone in where someone was feeding them the answers. <laughs> And uh, I, I laughed because it's just like I uh, at the time, like there was like one other person on the call and we were just like messaging each other. Was like, is this what's happening? We started asking like really uh, simple questions that if you knew that like, like what's what color is the sky? Like you don't have to really have a thought <laughs> about blue. Uh, I'm just curious, like wh when you're when you're going through uh, and you're talking to all these people, uh, how do you how do you like, you know, differentiate the people who know their stuff versus not know their stuff. Um, I'm kind of curious, like some of the stories behind uh, the tactics you use. And uh, I think even previously we were talking and I made a comment that at a certain point I get tired of hearing people just say they want to change the world. It's like, oh, I want to save these millions of lives. And it's like, okay, now tell me what you really care about. So I'm curious, like how do you, how do you cut through the fat, get right to the meat of knowing, you know, who are these people are, what are they about? And I'm curious if you could like kind of share some stories that uh, taught you those lessons. Like, um, I learned things from like someone saying like, Hey, I don't know what your company is about at Ron five. I learned things from people showing up and getting like things fed to them, uh, in terms of like how we ask questions that identify that sooner. So, uh, a big question there, but yeah, uh, if you could just kind of share some of your stories, some of your lessons and at the same time, uh, how you, how do you, how do you cut through it? Transparency. That's the, direct answer that you're looking for uh, and i'll dig into the details on that so in the messaging and the stories that we carry out there i mean we start with putting together our messaging once again very media rich talking about who they're reporting to telling the peers that they'll have putting in the linkedin profile showing the technology videos sharing the press releases that are publicly available and then crafting the story that we can only get from the ceo and obviously uh, get approval for sharing this information. So we don't share anything that's confidential. It's all approved, but very transparent details about by the time you're done reading this. And if you want to take advantage of all the media that we're sharing with you, and you really should have, I'll be overly conservative and say about 85% of your questions answered. And then that, that last 15%, should obviously manifest itself throughout the interview process when you're interacting with the human beings involved in the hiring process. Throughout that overly transparent messaging, the candidates that we get back or start engaging with, those are the ones that decided that based on everything that we shared with them, it made sense for them to pursue this. They are interested, they are qualified. We make it so binary and one of the, the tactics that I'm giving away trade secrets here, not that it's mind blowing, but it's something that drastically helps me. When I'm taking on a position with a company, one of my phases of, of taking in information from them that make this process so black and white is after we take in all this bigger picture story, I say, what are the five questions that if you ask, ask them in an interview process and they were binary, they either had the experience or they didn't have the experience. What five questions would you design and share with me? Meaning these aren't soft questions. Like, do you play with, do you play well with others in the sandbox, right? Are you a good team player? 
yes, I'm a good team player. No, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, our company needs to build a quality system from scratch. Have you ever built a quality system from scratch? Yes or no? If it's no, you aren't a candidate. If it's yes, now I have four more questions. And if they're all yes, I get to present you to my client because I know that no matter what, these five binary yes or no responses are the fundamental drivers to being an appropriate candidate. Maybe, and I'll ask permission on this with my client up front, um, if I get a four out of five and they're a rock star personality, then let's do it. But I ask my client when I, before we even start and kick off, like, what are these binary filters that don't waste their time, don't waste your time so that we can present only appropriate qualified candidates? Yeah, so the, that makes sense. Uh, and in a perfect world where everyone just said the truth wherever they went, I think that uh, work 100% of the time. How do you know, like, so you say, Lowell, have you ever built a neuro neuro uh, modulation machine? I was like, yes. So then how do you go down and figure out that I'm like, clearly full of shit? I've never done this. Uh, so how do you like, how do you qualify the yes? Yeah, I think the answer that you're, you're, or the question that you're really trying to ask is, how am I able to validate the BS that people are telling me? The one thing I will tell you is the medical device industry is fortunately a very highly educated industry. It's a, as best as it can be, you know, obviously there's always exceptions here. It's a fairly ethical, um, compliant, regulated industry that just bodes for educated, professional human beings. There's a lot of exception. I promise you that I've run into them myself. Um, but for the most part, you know, I don't really have to deal with shadiness of asking, hey, have you built a quality system for a medical device company before? Yes, I have. And it's a complete blatant lie. Um, it, because then you say, okay, well, give me a few examples, et cetera. And then they start running down and, and start talking about them. But this is, I mean, have, has it happened to me where I've had someone blatantly lie to me? Yes. It, it's like, you know, I... It's a great way of thinking about it. Laws that are implemented by a government cannot protect people from breaking the laws, mm -hmm. right? It, just because a law exists doesn't mean a human being is not going to break the law. It just puts in guidelines for creating a civilized environment, right? It doesn't stop people from doing things. I mean, obviously we have law enforcement to enforce the law, but just simply by the near, the sheer fact that laws exist does not stop people from breaking laws. So when you talk about ethics or morals of have you built a quality medical or have you built a quality system for a medical device startup company before? And someone looks at me steady handedly and can pass a lie detector test and say, yes, I have. And they simply haven't, even though it's on their resume, et cetera. I mean, you know, there's. 15 hoops we have to jump through in an interview process. And, and even what are they going to do? Pepper their, their references that they give me at the very back end when I call Dr. John Smith or, you know, PhD Susie Q and I say, hey, has John ever really uh, done a quality system before? And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, that's a lot of work to do that much lying. Is, is someone going to really go through all that effort? Yeah. I'm not saying it's doing not it. possible, but I'm just saying in theory – and at a high level, the medical device industry typically doesn't bode that kind of culture. 
Yeah, I was once interviewing a person for a CTO position, and uh, they had tons of experience, but within like 10 minutes of the call, you could tell that they were, you know, not qualified, even though like everything on paper was right, even their references were saying it's right. I know many people that'll say, hey, look, can you be my reference and say I did X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, no, uh, you didn't do X, Y, and Z for me. But that's a me thing. I know they'll find someone else, give them a fake title or something. Like if, I think if people want to get their, their foot in the door and find an opportunity, I think a lot of people will do that or they'll just BS their way in. Um, so then when you're qualifying through people and you send them on, how many people are you sending on? And then do you, uh, how often do people not stay? You know, like, uh, do you gather data on what happens to people after they've um, been sent on by you and then hired and then uh, stay for a period of time? Yeah, of course we do. I, our goal, one of our, our KPIs or metrics that we can sell as a recruitment firm and saying, hey, look at us, this is what we're able to accomplish, is our is mitigating offer turndowns, right? So we have a, a number of like, how often does an offer get turned down? We've designed an interview process, once again, working off of transparency, that in theory, it should mitigate the offer to be turned down because at the very back end, we've worked so closely with the candidate of really what they want and the client of really what they can offer and trying to marrying these two points to make sure that by the time we actually extend an offer, it shouldn't be a huge surprise and thus mitigating an offer turned down. That's one thing. Um, running a and designing a thorough interview process, not just one or two video calls. You meet in person at the office for a half hour with only two or three people when realistically this person is going to be interacting with a team of 20. Um, and then you send an offer and that's in that process. I mean, there's not that many touch points thus you're leaving yourself susceptible to a lot of unknowns and, and then anything can happen. When we start talking about designing processes where our candidates are having multiple touch points with probably anywhere between the top two to five people that they're either going to be reporting into or indirectly reporting into and working very closely with. And then they decide if they're going to bring that person on to meet. And then they decide if that person's going to come on and do an interview panel, maybe even with a presentation that they're given information ahead of time to be able to put a presentation on. And then we're going to do reference checks. And then there's probably going to be a couple more calls, maybe even with board members afterward, once we've got that far. Um, there's a lot of hoops that have to jump out that we just call testing points, where it either allows the person to fail because they're supposed to fail, or it allows them to pull out because they don't want to keep on interviewing and investing their time because they're ultimately not fully committed to that one particular position. And maybe they have seven things going on and they figure that one of mouse is just going to work because they just want a job rather than a position. So there's a lot that goes into mitigating the risk um, of someone being terminated or fired. Um, in addition to our points of contact with them and the information that we feed our clients uh, that they're not getting from even their interactions that are a lot of hoops that the candidate still has to jump through. So the touch points, the, the, the amount of touch points that exist throughout an interview process truly do matter to get the best picture to help mitigate someone from not being the right person after they're onboarded. Once again, can you create a perfect world that you're going to not fight. You're going to learn everything before someone joins and have no boogeyman come out later on. No, it's impossible. 
Um, but that's why you design thorough interview processes and treat them seriously. That makes sense. The, so we're coming to the end of 2022. How many people have you placed and then how many have stayed? That's like a, a percentage. Uh, great question. So this year, coming up probably probably close to 100 hires now. I mean, we have a, another handful or two of, of ongoing projects that are happening that hopefully we'll see what the next month brings before January 1st rings in the new year. Um, but roughly around 100, 100 plus. Out of that 100 plus, you know, we like to we like to keep our mitigation down from sub 5% of things that are truly not working out. I mean, once again, that you're never going to have a perfect track record because humans are humans. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I actually recently had a call with a, with a client of mine that we hired a VP of clinical affairs. It was a very methodical process. The candidate said all did and said all of the right things. And it was actually a very flexible startup process where it involved a lot of trust from both sides um, for her to walk away from the other opportunities that she was involved in. And also um, the, the client side of having to deal with the FDA in certain timelines. It was a very, very collaborative process to bring this person on and a lot of touch points. And in theory, it should have been the perfect hire because we made another hire for that same company two months prior to that. And they're still saying it's one of the best hires they've ever made. However, um, this particular person, and it was a VP level, I mean, this was a an executive level, uh, some of the most bizarre human behavior just started manifesting after two or three months of being on board. And you just don't know why and and it didn't have to be like that and it's things that you can't control um when you're even in the interview process months prior to that and so all of a sudden this person then just simply disappeared mm. <laughs> and the and the the company had no recourse or even ability to communicate with this person because they weren't answering text messages or calls anymore and this is a vp level person that has recently yeah. fairly recently joined their company um, and she disappears and the company had to then go back and talk with their legal counsel and say, what can we do at this point? There, there's not even an engagement going on. And just for legal purposes and timestamp purposes, the only thing that they could do was simply write an email and a text message to the best known numbers and contact information that they had for this person. Um, and simply say at this point, their employment is terminated and we're no longer needing your services. And there was no response even to the email. So in, they never know what happened with that person. I, they don't know what happened to that person. And this is an executive level person that jumped through countless touch points in an interview process. Um, and that is an anomaly that to this day, I can't explain. And I, I've known the candidate. I talked to her very clearly. We spent a lot of time negotiating and working through things together. She was very compliant, um, a professional, and and also both sides. By the time everything was done, was incredibly excited to have this work out. And then to have it end like that was just beyond unexpected. And there was nothing that even a background check or anything could do. That was just real time um, magic hmm. slash witchcraft. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I, I'm just I'm wondering if they were like kidnapped or something. Are we sure they're alive? Like, <laughs> that's uh, I don't know. I don't know. If it well, I don't know. There's like if it was in Florida, then I, I'm even more suspect uh, suspicious because you know you have gators and stuff that'll eat people. Yeah, like you yeah, have boa constrictors this, now. No, this, the, yeah, we do have boa constrictors, but we that this was not in Florida. Okay, all right then. You know, hopefully wherever that person is, uh, they're, they're surrounded by love and are doing something they enjoy. Um, so they should probably let you guys know uh, what happened, so you you know I can do a better job. Um, it kind of leads me to a related question. I think that maybe this will probably be the last one on recruiting, recruiting and hiring. Um, so people come in in the med tech space. Uh, I'm familiar with the more of like a fire fast. If you have to fire someone, you know, if you can coach them, get them better, you, you should. But what are some of the rules of thumbs that you suggest uh, the entrepreneurs and C suites that you work with use uh, in terms of like it's it's not going to work out. However, the time horizon is for figuring that out. In this case, like a couple months. Um, and this person more <laughs> terminated themselves. Uh, what what are some of the litmus tests that you suggest for entrepreneurs in the med tech space to know when it is time to pull the trigger and then how should they handle it? Because a lot there's like a lot of subjectivity in terms of like I've seen people keep people around for years and they're like, oh, we should get rid of them, should get rid of them, should get and they're like, uh, it's not good for the person. <laughs> like the person wants to go do something good if they can't do good there. I'm so curious, like how do you handle that side of it? Or is it like I guess it's not necessarily a, uh, a factor in what you uh, help people with, but I'm just curious about your thoughts on it in general. So you said a word subjectivity, which, you know, you could also say it depends, right? And I hate using that because you're, you're looking for answers here and guidance. And I would say there's a blend of patience and documented metrics and notes that you can blend together, right? So, yeah. um, you know, I, I had a client of mine who almost utilized our services for a position, and now they are, but almost use our services for a position to start out with something. And then as we were about to engage, they said, hey, listen, we, we just found a candidate. We want to run with this candidate. Um, if anything happens, we'll circle back around. I said, absolutely no problem. They ended up finding the candidate. The candidate started, right? So they did this process all on their own. And this was a medical director. This is like a serious, serious position. And this person started and chose to quit on the Friday of the first week. So for me, that is, I don't know, I mean, a bag of red flags, not one red flag, a bag of red flags. First and foremost, there's incredibly little patience for the person to understand if anything can be rectified or worked through or discussed. I mean, making a career decision, which is arguably the biggest decision, right? I mean, besides marriage and, and spending the rest of your life with somebody, you know, when you take on a position that pays your bills, that's bigger than buying the car, buying the house, because your career, which pays you, enables you to buy your house and buy and pay for the car. So it's a huge career decision. And to, and to be able to quit after one week, um, it's a severe lack of patience or a severe inefficient interview process. Like we're literally almost nothing was talked about in the interview process and something was self-declared during the first week that was so ridiculous that someone couldn't stay on board anymore. Um, so, you know, that's a very extreme example. So when I say patience and metrics and notes, when it comes to the company assessing an employee and deciding on whether or not they want 
to keep someone on board, you have to ask the question, how long has it been going on for? I mean, if they've been really upset or it hasn't worked out or they just haven't been performing as much as they think they should be performing for months or years, um, that's that's a problem, right? That That's where specific transparency, radical candor to be able to sit down and have live conversations eye to eye with the person and saying, this is how we are seeing things. Let us know if anything's going on specifically that we should be empathetic towards or understand that you're going through that may be causing this, some of this behavior. However, if not, please provide any feedback that you have for us um, in case we can give you more resources to be more successful in your position. And for the most part, over the next three to six months, we are going to be putting in these metrics that we're going to be guiding you towards and making sure that you're staying on course. And now that we've established these, it's on you to communicate back and forth. And if you're not getting the resources to do so, and certainly to hit these uh, milestones or these goals, um, if you don't have any further feedback, we're assuming that you're going to hit these. And if you don't hit these, then we're going to have to think about, is this the right place for you, right? To go in there and make a knee-jerk reaction and fire somebody because they did one thing wrong uh, when they're a crucial position or whatever, I don't think that's the right move. I think if someone has been a absolute sore or a pain in the side or a thorn for years, I mean, someone needs to just have the gall to come in and have a direct conversation and say, what's going on? Um you know, firing somebody without any communication whatsoever is also incredibly wrong. You have no idea what's going on with the other person. I'm not looking to make excuses for people. That's why communication and transparency is so important. But when it comes down to making sure that someone as an employee um, has to be assessed on either staying or leaving and involving patients and note-taking, it's if someone's not performing to their optimal capability or at least expectations, you have to put in metrics and goals for them to adhere to. And then if they're not adhering to them after especially communication and transparency has been given to that person on these are the goals that you need to be hitting and they don't hit them, then you have something to point back to and say, this is why it's not working out, but you're gone. Like that That's how you got to do it. You got to do it properly and methodically. Making emotional knee-jerk reactions is not a way to run a business or be a leader. That makes sense. Uh, so just touching back on one thing you said about uh, the one lady, and then I think we're probably going to talk about stoicism, but uh, with the remaining time, the when you see someone who leaves so early, um, do you ever take a step back and think, uh, what if it's the, the company? What if like they came in and the company was just egregious in a way that they are very sensitive to, and then you use that as an opportunity to better understand the client if that's even a client you want do is that ever a part of your thought process in terms of like if something doesn't work like so egregiously like that where someone leaves uh, i'm in the on the first friday i mean there are some places when i used to work for people where i'd know in the first 10 seconds it wasn't gonna work out and then it's just you know how you can navigate that moving forward like some people some really pretty bad things could happen in the first week then make them want to leave uh do you ever use that as just an assessment tool to better understand if the client maybe is a secret you know jerk or something like that the answer is yes. So the, the wonderful part about being a consulting firm at the end of the day is you get to choose who you want to work with. Uh, we don't mm -hmm. have to sign everybody and take everyone's business. And I'm glad to be able to say that there's we know that it, it takes two sides 
to come up with the right answer and, and potentially only one side to come up with the super wrong answer. Um, and sometimes both are wrong. But, you know, we we've have a lot of experience and a lot of stories of companies that it's the executive leadership as a whole. It's the philosophy of the owner. It's all, the culture that's just completely toxic or wrong. And anyone in their right mind should not want to think about that place being a step in the resume um, because it's just not the right place to be. Yeah. So um, there are plenty of companies that I purposely will choose not to work with because I either heard through the grapevine, heard directly, um, experienced it through my own interactions with the company and, and how they run business. And uh, that's the beauty of, of formulating partnerships with companies, being a consultant, um, because partnerships are everything, right? Going back to the communi communication and transparency. And if that's not there um, and someone's just treating you, you know, inappropriately or just, you know, not as a partner or they simply are not nice. I mean, it, it just, time is too limited. And and so yeah. you know, if you know a company is bad, if you know the, com the culture is not right, um, don't work with them. Don't go there. Yeah. And I think anything we've talked about thus far in terms of how an assessed a candidate could easily be applied to anyone listening in who is looking for a place out there. Um, look for transparency, look for touch points and just, you know, pay attention. Um, we're looking at it from the lens of uh, on the, you know, the company, but I, I think that everything we talked about today uh, could be easily applicable to anyone who's, you know, looking for a job as well. Um, I know you're a big fan of stoicism and so am I, and I, I'm actually staring at my uh, copy of the, uh, like a beat up copy of the Medita uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. So I'm just curious, uh, what, do you, what do you pull from that book? Like in terms of uh, your daily life, like sometimes I walk around with a quote that I chew on as I like, in a, in a meeting, I'm like fully focused, but like in between, and I'm going for a walk or something. Like I'll be like chewing on like something that Marcus Aureli said or someone else said, or how can I better impact it, uh, your life with it? But so, how how is stoicism living in your life right now? A two thousand year old philosophy. So I read at least a small paragraph or a page or even a book within meditations every morning. Um, hmm. And Ryan Holiday, who is arguably my favorite or certainly one of my favorite authors, which is basically the most modern reviver of stoicism today, um, has created a, a series of books that I encourage everyone to read. My still to this day, my favorite one is Stillness is the Way or Stillness is the Key. Um, right now I'm reading the most recent one that he released earlier uh, in September of this year, actually. Um, Discipline is Destiny. And it's, it's excellent. So what stoicism has given me is there is one sentence that can be summed by everything that you can learn from stoicism and meditations and Marcus Aurelius and Zeno, who even started the school of uh, stoicism back in Greece. It's do the right thing. And I know that overly simplifies everything, but it comes back down to what Marcus really is, is constantly pushing, which is do the right thing. It, it's oversaid um, in Ryan Holiday's books, which is really the purpose of Stoicism is teaching the human mind on what is doing the right thing. And doing the right thing is for mind, body, and spirit. And if you come into our office here, we have canvases on the walls. One of them happens to be do the right thing in big bold letters. And if you carry that one sentence with you, I mean, think about it, it is literally applicable in every facet aspect of your life. Like 
there are certain cultures that are drastically different where, you know, what they truly believe and they would pass a, a lie detector test of what they believe is the right thing may be horrifically the wrong thing in other cultures, right? I mean, so there's always going to be some level of that aspect, but there's, there is a strong alignment of civilized cultures of what is doing the right thing versus not. And we all have that little demon inside of us, that little angel on our shoulder, that little devil on our shoulder. And it's up to us if we want to listen to that or not. But by doing the right thing and at least asking yourself the question, is this the right thing with every choice that you have to make, it will make you a better person for doing so. And you can elaborate and you've read meditations and you've read Sto you've read stoicism books, I'm sure. There, you could take it in, in many, many topics of life and really drill down and go down a rabbit hole, which is philosophy fundamentally. But doing the right thing is what I walk away with when it comes to stoicism. And, and there's four key virtues that are represented by stoicism, which is wisdom, courage, temperance, temperance, and justice. Um, those four key things. And Marcus Aurelius says, what could be better than these four virtues? And if you can live your life with wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice, um, he would be shocked if you could find out anything that would be better than those four things and, and implementing those things into life. Mm -hmm. Is there... Um... Do you have the like the the Ryan Holiday Memento Mori coin? Are you like that far of a, a fan? I, I have that, and I have the Four Wisdom coin, and I have the Amor Fati coin, all in my backpack. And and actually, I'm such a lover of Ryan Holiday. We actually did a big project and hosted a conference at Texas Medical Center in early October of this year, 2022, and to plan and host that conference we ended up having to go out to houston in late august and then back out there for the actual conference in 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 october and we had a big partner that was situated in austin so we actually flew to houston and drove out to austin and on the way between much closer to austin but on the way between houston and austin is a town called bastrop texas which is roughly about 40 minutes east of Austin, about two hours west of Houston. And uh, Bastrop, Texas is where Ryan Holiday's bookstore, The Painted Porch, is located. Hmm. And I stopped there as a as a, as a cheerleading tourist in August because I was so excited to go there. And I was very gl glad that I had to repeat the trip coming in October because I was going back to Houston in October for the conference and back out to Austin shortly after. And I stopped there again. And so I've been to Ryan Holiday's bookstore twice now and it's called the painted porch which is the english translation for where stoicism actually started in greece which is called the stoa poliki or pokili um, which is greek for the painted porch so the direct translation and so stoa pokili is is the painted porch in greek um, which is where stoicism started and ryan holiday called his bookstore the painted porch which uh I've been fortunate enough to go to twice and bought a couple signed books from him because I get a little bit fanboy and geeky when it comes to uh, Ryan Holiday and Stoicism. No, that's awesome. I uh, I know he had a library. I didn't know it was in Texas. I was really close to it. I used to live in Austin. I should have checked it out. It's Is Bastrop, um, Texas, right there. Uh, do you uh, do you wake up and meditate in the morning? Do you do the like think about death? Like, what are some of the practices you use? I will say I, I did that for many, many years. And uh, this past weekend, I celebrated my my firstborn, who's a 
gorgeous little boy's first birthday. Um, so this past year of <laughs> raising a, a baby boy and having my morning somewhat taken for me um, and, you know, I'm slowly getting them back, but it's still a toss of a coin sometimes. Sometimes he wakes up a little early. Sometimes I actually get my mornings back. But I used to have a very uh, methodical, disciplined, almost religious morning. I, I wake up at 4.30 every morning. And usually um, I'm either in the office at 7.30 or 8. And so usually that morning time is working and mentally preparing for the day. So I've gone through phases, to be honest with you. Sometimes it's 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 praying. Other times it's meditating for the various styles of meditation, which is sometimes clearing your mind. Other times it's reflecting on things, um, you know, spending, you know, an hour being in mode of gratitude, thinking of everything possible, literally down to the molecular level of what you're gracious for or um, or, or, or sharing gratitude for, uh, stretching, you know, you name it. So yeah, my mornings are my sacred mornings, but it's a, it's a, and, and oftentimes spent reading as well. So it's a, it's a disciplined approach to starting my day. I'm a big morning person. Hmm. All right. Is there, what are your, what are the current books you're reading? What are, well, I imagine you're only reading one at a time. No, I I used to be that way. And then uh, my business partner um, and very good friend had taught me otherwise to to try something. And now I've probably gone a little bit too overboard with it, um, where you have multiple books going on at once, because if you're a consistent reader, um, you know, there's just some some days that you just want to wake up and learn something that you can put as an action item. And yeah. if you're really deep into a novel a fiction novel maybe you just don't maybe you feel a little bit more aggressive that day where you're just like god i want to learn something that i can put in action today and you know reading this love story or this you know marvel book is not going to really cut it for me today um other times where it's like man i i need a mental break and maybe i just need to read fiction i need to read a love story or whatever it may be um rather than another self-help book or another business book or another leadership book so there's this aspect of um, having multiple books going at once that are different themed. And so, you know, I have right now, I have Ryan Holiday's Discipline is Destiny going on. I have a book called, by Jason Kalkanis called Angel, How to Invest in Technology Startups, Timeless Advice for an Angel Investor. I'm really trying to get more involved in angel investing this year and next year coming up. Um I'm a I'm a avid fly fisherman, so there's a book yeah, called The Optimist. Yeah. It's on my uh, it's on my reading list. Yeah, The Optimist. You told me about it. Excellent. Yeah, it, it's great. I mean, it, it just basically breaks up a guy who's learning and and always will be learning how to fly fish um, in various places of the world and talking about the specific fish that he's targeting in those places, like the bonefish or the permit in, in Bahamas or the bass in Wisconsin where you are in the lakes um, or going down and, and and doing trout fishing in Argentina, for example. So it, it's been very cool read. And I love my, my Saturday mornings of taking a few casts out there. So it's things like that that I'm reading. Um, and I've been recommended a few books that I'm, I'm also very excited about reading. The most recent one actually that I just started um, is actually called Essentialism, the Discipline, the Disciplined Pursuit of Less, which is ironic because as I'm talking to you about how scatterbrained I've been working on with these books, 
um, and raising a, a, a one-year-old boy at this point and building a business from scratch coming up on a year um, called Lifeblood Capital. We started in January 1st, 2022, which is a contingency of our career that we've been in for the past 15 years. Um, essentialism, the discipline pursuit of less is simply hardcore focusing on really what is important, uh, both personally and professionally, and and learning how to say no. Um, and the, the premise of the book is success breeds failure. <laughs> and so there, there's these methodical ways of saying that you, you work so hard to achieve success, but once you achieve success, success opens up opportunities. And as you have to have the ability to choose between these opportunities and then go on to these opportunities, these opportunities ultimately start diluting the very reason that you became successful, thus causing failure from success. Uh, so it's an interesting concept that I'm, I'm reading right now, but there's also a, a YouTube video on it by the, 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 um, the author, which is Helen Hansel was able to win any competition she took part in. Trademark. She was known as the contest queen. The... Which is Greg McEwen. <laughs> essentialism. I think we just got a, a taste of it. <laughs> yeah, you did. Well, the, essentialism, the, the disciplined pursuit of less by Greg McEwen. Uh, that's mm. uh, that's the one that you got to check out if you're interested in something. So, Sweet. And uh, um, what does happiness mean to you? I actually try not to use the word, to be honest with you. Um, I, I like the word content much more. Uh, I think happiness is completely fleeting and it's a, it's not a destination. It's, um, I should say happiness is a destination. It's, it's not a sustainable emotion. And so, um, you know, I, I don't like using the word to be honest with you, and it's not because I'm a pessimist or some sort of dark, angry person. I'm not. I'm no, you're a stoic. I'm a, you're I'm a stoic. Quite, yeah, I'm a stoic. I'm quite a happy. That's a stoic person. answer. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, if if you're going to ask me truly what is happiness, I would say um, spending time with my family and my son. I I I absolutely love my mornings with my son and waking him up and going fishing with them and all the other stuff, just watching them smile. So that's happiness. But other than that, I would say happiness is a destination of an emotion um, and not sustainable. So I'd rather be content and, and work on a uh, very methodical, disciplined way of, of, of things that make me happy. That makes sense. And um, what advice do you have for young people listening in? Like college students leaving, looking for a job, whatever. When you were that age, looking yeah. back. You know, just think about what you have in your life and think about where it comes from and who's responsible for making it happen for your life. And if a lot of it is responsible from coming from other people and not necessarily yourself, how would you feel if it was taken away? And what pressure does that put on yourself to being first and foremost gracious and, and, and showing gratitude for what you already have in your life versus what you don't have and what more could you get? And also what could you not take advantage of anymore? And, and or I should say, take for granted. I, I think we, we are living in a lot of time um, where youth 
for the most part, culture takes a lot for granted. And I would say knowing what you have control of sustaining in your life and creating for your life versus um, taking for granted what the world creates for you, it'll make you a better person. It'll make you a stronger person. Um, and I would say help people, put other people before yourself, stop being selfish. And I think if you put others before yourself and you're constantly working with a service mentality, you will be surprised at how quote unquote happy er you are um, with not only yourself, but um, with your life. And, and, and also the fact that you have more purpose than simply indulging yourself. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, what is a problem that you're having that you need help with? Like, it can be anything. It doesn't have to be a solvable problem. Running and growing a business in its fullest capacity for the first time. Um, I came from a firm where I had my own team and had my own clients. And I thought that I was running a business within a business. And there was a lot of back end invisible operations that enabled me to do what I did um, that I took for granted because I simply didn't know what that took to be able to instill in terms of the back end operations that supported me. Not that I didn't want to learn, not that I wouldn't have been very happy to learn um, what that all meant, but I just didn't have access to learning what that all meant. And so starting something from a white sheet of paper and having to figure out really what the back end of a business entails, rather than being in a, an employee that shows up every day and just, you know, you, you put your head down and you do your function and you, you execute on what you're told to execute on. And then you go home and then, you know, you wait until the next morning and do it all over again. Um, there is a, a lot of things to do that involve putting in operations to run a successful business. And um, I have spent the past year learning it day in and day out, um, flying by the seat of my pants. And, and it's been an amazing adventure and journey learning all this. And I've seen the world with, a, especially the professional world with drastically different eyes um, and a lot more respect for entrepreneurs and business owners and um people who run companies. And so uh, I don't know if it's necessarily a problem, but it's, it's, it's understanding how I can successfully continuously grow my business and making sure that everyone in my business is taken care of. Um, and ultimately we are providing our mission statement to our industry, which is helping med tech startups. Is there a, so it's quite quite broad, which is good. But uh, is there a specific like thing in particular that's poking you in the back of the head currently? An element that you don't know about, an element that you want to grow on. Um, it could even be legal stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I would just say making sure compensation structures and legal compliance with my company is just something that I wish I really didn't have to deal with. Um, but it's, an, it's a complete necessary evil and, and a big, big thing that you have to work and think through uh, just to have every everything be okay. The T's crossed and the I's dotted. So like, um, are you talking like in terms of just like making sure the contract's good or in terms of what you guys are doing in-house? What does that mean? 
Um, yeah, just making, and we're working through it right now. But yeah, it's it's making sure that contracts are all taken care of, um, okay. both the companies protected, the employees protected, um, and everyone's fairly compensated. Um, both where it makes sense for the business to keep its doors open because the business is is having obviously enough revenue generation to pay for operations, but there's obviously the purpose of profits um, in addition to having the company or the employees be fairly compensated more than fairly compensated for their for their service to the company okay and um is there so we covered a lot of uh subjects and before i just ask you like where do people can keep up with you which will be in the show notes is there something we didn't cover that you either think we should cover with our last few minutes or that we just would like to cover real quick basically do we miss anything mm. well i if you're a stoic then you're a forever student of life in the world. And I think there's so many topics that you can constantly cover. And, and, and I am genuinely interested in, in a lot of different things. Um, in terms of what we didn't cover that I would like to say, I would say that um, if there's one thing that I'd like to share about myself that's of interest is that I'm a, I'm a wino. I love wine. I think wine is a... Um, more than just an alcoholic drink it's a it's a story it's a geo geographic story it's a historical story um it represents not only a good time but a lot more to it it's an art it's a science and it also brings people together and i've traveled the world for wine uh, the most recent visit that i've had was uh, i went to a conference in malta a couple weeks ago and i was able to visit the oldest winery on the island of malta uh, the wine was absolutely exceptional. I got to also visit the vineyards. Um, it's called Marsovine. So shout out to Marsovine uh, Winery. It's exceptional, exceptional wine. And so, um, yeah, I like you know, I would I would say I'm a wino, and, and I and I love uh, wine for for what it is, both superficially uh, as well as um, incredibly dynamically. So if you could uh, recommend a wine and a story that comes with it, you know, is there a, a a place you travel to, the head of wine, the head of story, that history that you can recommend to us. If it could be not as expensive, so more people can uh, share in this journey. Uh, what would you recommend, and what do you what story would you want them to be thinking about as they're drinking it? Mm, man, great question. So, I proposed to my now wife in a region called Priorat, which is an hour south of Barcelona in Spain. I married my wife in a vineyard with a winery in Eastern Washington, two and a half hours east of Seattle. And our honeymoon was doing 23 vineyards on both islands in New Zealand. And if my wife was answering this question, she would probably tell you that you have to go to New Zealand. And I would say the same thing. I mean, anyone who's been in New Zealand, it's just... It's God's country. It's an incredibly special place on the bottom of the world. And I would, I have so many wine stories that I, I could tell you because I, I love it. And the, there's beautiful stories all over the world. I've drank wine in Japan and visited vineyards in China and done it in Australia. And I've had Indian wine at the oldest Indian restaurant in England. Um, 
it's 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 a wonderful that's why i love it it's 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 a wonderful asset to give a good time with a lot of storytelling so there is an island called wine island which is right off of auckland and it's called wahiki island it translates to wine island wahiki island and it's basically imagine if i say france met costa rica because there's a tropical component to it but at the same time there is this amazingly wine country feel to it and you take a 30 to 40 minute ferry boat off of auckland directly to wahiki island and there's just a plethora of wineries and the wine there is eclectic from sparkling wine to orange wine to great exceptional whites and then just these bold as well as light reds and so um i highly recommend wahiki island uh, in in new zealand if i was going to tell you something to go to sweet yeah i'll check it out um uh, i knew auckland's a northern little island right correct I mean, it's not little uh, yeah it's not no it's i mean it's not doable in a in a day on foot but it's not yeah. huge and but i would say that um yeah, it's like an so Auckland island. is the is the is the big city in the Northern Island, and if you fly into Auckland and jump on a ferry, which is an obvious right in the harbor there, and you take it right over to Wahiki Island, um, you stay there. I mean, you can get lost there forever. It's it's absolutely stunning. Sweet. And then, uh, where can people go to stay up to date with you? I only have so as as active as I am on it, and if anyone's listening on or to this podcast that knows me already that um, I am overly active on LinkedIn and it is because it literally is my only social media. So if you want to reach me by email, it's Giovanni at lifebloodcapital.com. However, if you want to keep up with everything else, uh, you can see me and find me on LinkedIn where I will share my podcast, which is the MedTech Money Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs in medtech who have raised capital and investors who have deployed capital in medtech and we demystify that raising and investing capital in medtech that's the purpose of it um, and then also just sharing up-to-date news of what's going on in medtech and also um, in a fun manner trying to share valuable content along with my travels of which conferences i go to thank you for joining us today with the learn with lowell show check us out at learnwithlowell.com Anywhere podcasts can be found, subscribe, tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. That's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. And you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.